Good evening. This is Justin Ford for From the Frontline. Tonight we are dealing with effective evangelism on the streets and in the marketplaces. In the studio with me is Dr. Peter Hammond, the founder of Frontline Fellowship, who has been involved in serving persecuted Christians for over 40 years in 38 countries. Dr. Hammond, you recently led a series of open-air outreaches on the streets around the Cape Peninsula. Do you find these outreaches effective? We do, yes, indeed. So um, Tuesday, 9th of August, public holiday in South Africa, uh, they're called National Women's Day. We mobilized 35 volunteers in six teams to conduct Women's Day evangelistic outreaches in Cape Town, in the gardens, Tableview Beachfront, Plumstead, Boatencrux Street near the entrance to the waterfront in the Cape Town International Conference Center, Seapoint Promenade, and Worcester. Uh, so collectively, we just read thousands of gospel booklets and leaflets. We had scores of conversations, and we had the joy of counseling and praying with a number of responsive people. I'd like to proceed with the following verse from Romans. How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. That's from Romans chapter 10, verse 15. Uh, Dr. Hammond, a symbol that uh, frequently appears in your publications is a pair of laced-up hiking boots. Is there any connection between that symbol and the verse from Romans I just quoted? Yes, indeed. In fact, one of the first books I ever wrote was Faith in Action. And I think it's so important to put feet to our faith. Well, that's another title of a book I wrote, Putting Feet to Your Faith. And yes, it's a symbol of our Great Commission courses, in particular, uh, uh, the laced-up boots. And <clears throat> I must say, I also have another picture in my mind when I talk about how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him that brings good news. Because... Hiking in the Nuba Mountains of Sudan back in 1998, I came across an evangelist who had no feet. He just had stumps for feet. And there he was riding on his donkey, a Nuban evangelist. And I asked, how did you lose both your feet? And it turned out the Arabs axed off his feet. They literally chopped off his feet at the ankles. Why? Because he's an evangelist. What did they do that for? They wanted to show everyone what happens if you defy the Sharia law of the government and therefore, they chopped off his feet, hoping that this would stop this evangelist. Well, as it so happened, it didn't stop him. I mean, there I saw this man riding on his donkey or walking on his knees. He didn't allow the inconvenience of not having feet to prevent him from proclaiming the gospel to neighboring villages. And I thought, what excuse do we have? And while he didn't have any feet... Yet that verse you just read is so appropriate for him because how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. And if a person without feet can continue to bring the good news to neighboring villages in one of the most hot, dangerous, inhospitable, remote areas of the earth in the Nuba Mountains, then what excuse do we have? Yes, indeed. Um, before we go back to the dangers of evangelism, um, let's just uh, go to the beginning and just consider the, the meaning of the word um, evangel and evangelism, these are rather beautiful euphonic words. Dr. Hammond, what is the meaning and origin of these words? Well, yes, <coughs> in the Greek, <coughs> the term, it, it's a noun, even uh, gelion, uh, or it's a good message or gospel, glad tidings, good news, great news. Uh, so that's even gelion, that's a noun. Well, the verb, even which is to announce, to declare, to proclaim, to preach, the good news. Uh, you can think of a, a herald um, announcing a proclamation from the palace. You know, uh, a son has been born to the king, a, a prince is born, or, or whatever the announcement may be, or you know, a war has been declared, or peace 
uh, has uh, been declared. And so uh, what we have here is not just a herald proclaiming some interesting news or something of importance, but the best news, the good news, the great news, the greatest news in many ways. And so, yes, uh, we are called to proclaim. And uh, so to evangelize is to announce the good news, to declare the good news, to bring or to deliver the good news, to preach and to proclaim that good news. And of course, uh, it, it implies calling for reaction. Um, an interesting thing about the word evangelism is that it contains the word angel. Can you comment on that? <laughs> yes, well, <clears throat> we don't exactly feel like angels, but uh, it's true. In uh, in the Bible, the word um, uh, for uh, evangelizing or evangelion, uh, it includes the term of angel because the, the word angel literally means a messenger. And so uh, the angels, the celestial beings that surround God's throne and that do God's bidding and who are sent as ministering servants, ministering spirits to God's people, they are first and foremost messengers. They are proclaiming or delivering God's message. And we can think of, for example, the angel Gabriel delivering to Mary the news that she is to bear uh, the Messiah uh, and you will call his name Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. And you think of the angels that God sent to Daniel and uh, uh, to Joseph. And throughout the Bible, we can see God has sent angels for different reasons and uh, to to communicate what he wanted communicating, such as to Gideon, to call Gideon to uh, lead the charge against the enemies of God. So, yes, uh, in a sense, in um, just this sense, uh, you could consider anyone who's an evangelist or a missionary is is uh, an angel in the sense that, not that we celestial beings are sinless, but in a sense that we have a message to deliver. Dr. Hammond, for those who, aren't, uh, who are not... Uh, uh, long-term Christians, can you tell us precisely what the good news message is that evangelists uh, uh, deliver? Well, uh, our textbook's always the Bible. So if you go into the book of Acts, at Pentecost, the Apostle Peter, at this birthday of the church, you could say, he preached a person. He preached a Christ-centered message, emphasizing the life, the death, and the glorious resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he proclaimed a person. He also proclaimed a gift. The gift of forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift of adoption into the family of God, and the gift of reconciliation with God. So uh, the Apostle Peter at Pentecost preached a person, and he proclaimed a gift, and he looked for a response. Uh, the response always looked for in the gospel, as we see in, in, in Pentecost, we read in Acts 2, repentance, faith in Christ, and baptism. I mean, these were some of the first responses required uh, to hearing the Evangelion, the, the good news, and that was repent of your sins, place your faith in Christ, and be baptized as a public testimony of your faith. Um, most gospel messages in the Bible, especially in the book of Acts, include the incarnation. God has come right into him. It's a historic, unique event. God with us, Emmanuel. So the incarnation is, is a key part of the Evangelion. Forgiveness of sins. This strikes at the heart of our problems. We're not just victims needing deliverance. We are guilty sinners needing forgiveness. And uh, forgiveness of sins is a key part of any Evangelion, any uh, gospel presentation. And the cross. The cross is central. God has acted, and the Lord Jesus Christ has been crucified. He is our atonement, our propitiation, our guilt-bearer, the expiation of our sins. And they proclaim the resurrection. Christ Jesus is alive. 
He's not just a martyr that we remember. He is the living, ascendant, risen Lord. He has conquered death, hell, and the grave. He is Lord. He's ascended. He's reigning on high. God has, has raised him from the dead. Uh, he is the resurrection and the life. So the evangelists always preached Christ. They preached a person, the person, not a system, not a doctrine, uh, not just uh, not some denomination, but an experience of vital relationship with Christ. And so uh, that's what the Evangelion includes. Uh, put another way, the Gospel and Acts always emphasize the person and character of Jesus Christ as God incarnate. And the teachings of Jesus Christ on God, life, the kingdom, human destiny, heaven and hell. The death of Christ as the atonement for our sin and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he is our living Lord. So uh, these are key parts of the Evangelion, uh, the key parts of the gospel that we are meant to be proclaiming. Dr. Hammond, what motivates you and other Christians to evangelize? Well, first and foremost, the Great Commission. Our Lord Jesus Christ has commanded us to preach the gospel throughout the whole world to every creature. He has commanded us that repentance and forgiveness sins us to be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. The Lord said, as the Father sent me, so send I you. And he breathed in him and said, receive the Holy Spirit. The Great Commission is most clearly given in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, where our Lord Jesus Christ says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. Therefore, go and make disciples of every nation, teaching them to obey all things whatsoever he's commanded and baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and lo, he'll be with us always to the very end of the age. Now, the Great Commission is great. It includes a great claim. Christ is all authority in heaven and earth, a great commission to make disciples of all nations, and a great command to teach obedience to all things the Lord has commanded. It also includes a great promise. The Lord promises to be with us for all time. And at the beginning of Acts, our Lord said that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the utmost parts of earth. So the Great Commission is first and foremost uh, why we do this. But I had an experience uh, back in 1977. I was converted to Christ on the 3rd of April, 1977. I'd been brought up in a secular home. We never went to church. We never read the Bible. We never prayed over our meals. Uh, we were a very secular family. And uh, I was converted at a cinema in 1977. I we had just traveled down from Rhodesia. I was in Cape Town, and I walked across the street to a cinema on a Sunday evening expecting to see a film, not realizing that the local Baptist church had hired out that local cinema for an evangelistic outreach. I actually was ambushed. Um, I should have known, but I didn't seem to perceive it, that cinemas were not open on Sundays in South Africa. There was a lot of people going in to the cinema, and I just assumed there was a film showing. I mean, they had a film advertised outside, but it didn't exactly say the local Baptist church had hired out for an evangelistic outreach that evening. So I got in and they started to sing hymns and I thought, this is strange. Well, maybe that's what South Africans do on Sundays before a cinema. Maybe they go, they just have some hymns. So I was still expecting the film. And when the pastor stood up and started to preach an evangelistic message, I knew I was trapped. I'd been ambushed. And I looked around, but the lights were still on. I was very close to the front of this thousand-seater cinema. Uh, and um, there was no easy way out. So I was kind of trapped. And I heard a message that changed my whole life. Because the preacher, Reverend Rex Matthew, was speaking about how much Christ had done for us. And he said, what have you ever done for him? 
and I knew nothing. I'd, I'd done absolutely nothing. I had not even thanked God for anything. I hadn't thanked him for life, health, food, nothing. Um, uh, I was an ungrateful wretch, and I think the first sin God convicted me of was ingratitude, that I'd never expressed my gratitude to the Creator, internal judge. And he mentioned how much Christ had suffered for us and said, what are you doing for him? And then he said, if God has preserved your life thus far, it's for a reason. And immediately into my mind came stories about my mother being bombed in a thousand bomber raids of Berlin, my father enduring the Blitz and fighting in the 8th Army in North Africa and uh, being bombed and uh, all the different things my parents had gone through. And of course, if they hadn't survived, I wouldn't be around either. And um, and then my parents talking about how much, how many different life-threatening things that threatened my life even before I was born, such as my mother was taking thalidomide tablets, which was designed to cure morning sickness for pregnant women. And it was a wonder drug it did. Uh, and uh, I think Pfizer produced that. <laughs> and uh, these, this wonder drug, which was going to solve all the problems of morning sickness, also brought out these children with uh, horrible deformities, like missing arms and legs and so on. And uh, in the panic and hysteria and revulsion of people to the uh, side effects of this, uh, this drug, um, e even South Africa, where abortion was illegal, allowed abortion in the case of people who'd been taking thalidomide. And my mother was advised by a doctor, you must abort this baby, which was me. And my mother, who's a nurse, was totally against abortion and uh, and would not consider it, which is interesting because she didn't come from a religious background. And uh, she called for the chaplain to pray for her. And there were chaplains in the hospital at that time and went ahead in faith. And, well, I've got my arms and legs. And um, and I've seen thalidomide babies born about the same time I was uh, without. So um, that immediately came to my mind. And then my mother speaking about all different things, problems in early youth and once when I was washed over a waterfall and things like that. And um, uh, that I, I should have died many times over. So I'm thinking, God has preserved my life. But why? I mean, what possible reason could it be? And uh, when he called for us to commit our lives to Christ, I don't know if anyone else went forward that night. I was quite oblivious to that, but I know I went forward and I knelt before God for the first time in my life, and I surrendered my life to Christ. And, and from that night, I've been called to mission. So for 45 years, I have known without a shadow of a doubt, I'm, I wasn't just converted, I was called to missions. And that's what I've been doing for the last 45 years of my life. Uh, the first missionary that came past our church, uh, Francis Grimm, I joined his mission, Hospital Christian Fellowship. Uh, I uh, got involved in everything I could from the beginning, evangelism, explosion, whatever was going on. Um, I was doing it door to door and so on. So um, I've now for over 45 years been involved in missions and evangelism. And uh, uh, so I can't help it. It's it's written into my spiritual DNA. God called me to evangelism from the moment I was converted. Um, even though the topic is effective evangelism on the streets and in the marketplaces, we've heard about uh, your experience of effective evangelism in the cinemas, not exactly what Hollywood um, would uh, like to see happening. No, in fact, uh, Stalin said that he wanted to turn the cinemas of the West into the new churches. And he said, we must capture Hollywood, which, in fact, for a long time, the Communist Party was the only party in town. Uh, they infiltrated as a, as a high priority of the first common turn, Communist International. They put the highest priority to infiltrate the cinemas and Hollywood, and they, they did, effectively, uh, for a very long time. And I think they still are. And then to infiltrate the seminaries with the goal of infiltrating churches. And, of course, you can see many seminaries that have become cemeteries for the gospel and church. 
and many denominations have been hijacked by, by the Communist Party. And so, yes, their goal was to create a secular religion. And I think in many ways, Hollywood has been a blasphemy industry. It's normalized blasphemy and swearing and a lot of immorality that most people through most of church history would have been horrified and, and condemned. And now many uh, look at it as not that serious. Even perversion and immorality is seen as, as quite normal and acceptable. And anyone who questions it is now condemned. So uh, to a large extent, you can see the cinemas have been used to advance uh, the kingdom of Satan, to attack the kingdom of God. But... Praise God, there's still churches that can use a cinema for proclamation of the gospel. And to be honest, coming from the secular family as coming in, I would never have walked into a church. The only way the church could have reached me was to go outside of the walls of the church and come and get me in a place where I was comfortable, which was, in my case, a cinema. And that's where I heard the gospel. Yeah, and Hollywood has created a, the hostile environment that modern-day evangelists have to operate in to a large extent. Yes, so many a time we are on the streets trying to witness. Maybe I'm offering gospel literature. Did you get one of these? May I offer you something, something for you to read? And the person says, I'm not interested. And uh, many times people say, is it religious? And I say, yes. Um, especially white people often say, then I'm not interested if it's something religious. Now, in Africa, most black people are very open to the gospel, very enthusiastic, very receptive, grateful. Uh, but unfortunately, you've got a lot of secularized whites and increasingly now some of the secularized, urbanized black people as well, rejecting the gospel, not because they know what the gospel is, but because Hollywood has pre-programmed them to, oh, you're all a bunch of religious hypocrites and things like this. And, and oh, you're just after my money. And even though we've never taken up an offering in, in over the 40 years of Frontline Fellowship's history. Um, but you've got people who have got a pre-programmed uh, predisposition prejudice to reject any attempt to present them with the gospel. And where they get this from? Well, the media has inoculated many against the gospel. Just going back to the history of uh, evangelism, um, particularly with uh, the Protestant uh, history, uh, there's a very proud um, tradition of evangelism and open-air preaching in that tradition, is there not, Dr. Hammond? Yes, so even the pre-reformers like, uh, well, of course we can go back to the Apostle Paul and uh, we can see the our Lord Jesus did a lot of open-air preaching, the Apostles did certainly a lot, <laughs> Dave Pentecost, Peter, Paul, uh, Athens, um, all of that, uh, but uh, we can all see many of the church fathers did a lot of open-air preaching, uh, Oregon, Ignatius, uh, Tertullian, Athanasius, uh, all the way through to, to Augustine, and the pre-reformers, the Waldensians, Peter Waldo and the Waldensians did much open-air preaching, and the Morning Star of the Reformation, John Wycliffe and his Lollards, they proclaimed the gospel in the marketplaces of England, and they were the forerunners, the field workers of the Reformation. Uh, Jerome Savonarola, the reform of Italy, he also was preaching open air, as was Jan Hus, uh, the rector of Prague University, and Martin Luther, yes, <laughs> very much open air preaching as well, and uh, uh, then Ulrich Zwingli. He would be every Friday when the peop uh, when the marketplace was open in Zurich, he'd be doing open-air preaching in the marketplace. He didn't wait for people to come to church. He went out to preach them. And, of course, George Whitfield, John Wesley, uh, many of these people famous for open-air preaching. And um, so this is how the gospel advanced from the times of the gospel in the book of Acts all the way through the Reformation uh, and the great evangelical awakenings. Open-air preaching has been very normal. In other words, you go where the people are. The Great Commission is not to go and open up churches and expect the unsaved to come into your churches. But uh, because the church is primarily a place of worship and where you prepare the people of God for evangelism in the world. 
And uh, many a church I've been to has actually got a sign above the doorway on the way out saying, you're now entering the mission field, which is a great reminder that the church is not where it's done. The church is where we are prepared, but the world is where the work goes on. And so, yes, um, we need to remind ourselves that the Great Commission is not to expect the pagans to come into our church, but for us to go where they are and proclaim the gospel to people in a way they will understand. This, the next question deals with uh, a, a sort of approach to evangelizing in, in this, the hostile and atheist society that's been produced by Hollywood and so on that we've touched on. Um, so when evangelism is narrowly defined, it's described as preaching the gospel, spreading the good news of Jesus. But there are those like 20th century Christian thinker Francis Schaeffer and also the contemporary English open-air preacher Major Adrian Clark, a good friend of yours, who consider that evangelism should also include communicating the law of God and calling sinners to repent. Francis Schaeffer wrote, There is only one kind of preaching that will do in a generation like ours, preaching which includes the preaching of the judgment of God. He goes on to say, In a time like ours, a negative message is needed before anything positive can begin. There must first be the message of judgment, the tearing down. He says that if he had an hour to evangelize a modern man, he would spend the first 45 to 50 minutes on the negative, getting the modern man to understand that he is morally dead under the wrath and judgment of God because he has broken God's law and only then, having made the modern man understand why he needs salvation, would he proceed to spend the remaining 10 or 15 minutes telling the modern man the gospel. Dr. Hammond, do you agree with this approach um, that there's more to evangelism than simply conveying the good news? Oh, yes, definitely. In fact, it's very ineffective to be saying Jesus is the answer when people aren't even asking the question. They need to be saying, what must I do to be saved? An average person is not asking what must I do to be saved because the average person thinks that they are fine. In fact, when we start doing our questions in the marketplaces and we start speaking to people in the malls and the streets, what do we hear? I'm a good person. I'm a very good person. And the average person is so self-righteous and so patting themselves on the back that they, they want to tell you about how wonderful they are. And so the average person has no sense of being lost. And I went forward on that uh, evangelistic crusade in Pines uh, 45 years ago because I sat there understanding I'm a hell-deserving sinner. I'm an ungrateful wretch. I've never thanked God. I've never prayed to God. I've never read the Bible. I, I've never done anything for God. And I just realized that if God was to throw me into an eternity in hell, it would be justly deserved. And so I went forward because I realized I was lost. And so the law of the law is perfect, converting the soul. That's, that's in, in uh, Proverbs uh, 19. So the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. What converts the soul? The law of the Lord. In Galatians 3, verse 26, we read that the law of God is the schoolmaster that leads us to Christ, that we can be justified by faith. So the law of God is the tutor, the schoolmaster that leads us to Christ so that we can be justified by faith. So it's wrong for us not to use the law. In fact, John Bunyan has said that we need to, to proclaim law before we proclaim grace. And it was well said by Martin Luther that if they do not tremble before a just and holy judge, they will not bow before the cross and receive the grace of God. And so the biblical principle is God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so we must give law to the proud and grace to the humble. We give law to the proud heart, the self-justifying heart, to break the proud heart. And then we give grace to the humble heart, the broken heart, to show them the way of salvation. And uh, John Wesley said, and 
there's an evangelist for you. Uh, he traveled something like a quarter of a million uh, miles, which is about 10 times around the world's circumference, by the way, on horseback. And uh, he said, you need to preach 90% law and 10% grace. So there he had the same principle that, that unless people understand the law of God, they don't understand their sinfulness and their lost state and the need of salvation. And once they understand the law of God and understand their human depravity, then they are ready to hear about the grace of God. So I think a lot of evangelism today is too shallow, too superficial. You can't build a tall building without first digging a deep foundation. You can't have a tall tree without massive deep root structure. And so it is when it comes to evangelism. If you don't lay the foundations with the law and lay good, solid foundations in repentance, you, you can't build much in terms of the fruit of the Spirit. The, the roots need to go down into the law of God, the justice of God, the holiness of God. So yes, law to the proud heart, grace to the humble heart. And we know when we can stop preaching law and start preaching grace by when people stop justifying themselves and stop proclaiming themselves to be a good person and a very good person. When a person recognizes that they are lost and they're sinners, it's when people are crying out, what must I do to be saved, that we're ready to preach the salvation message. And sadly, most people are rushing to the salvation message first without laying the foundations and creating a lot of abortions, spiritual abortions, where people aren't saved. They're stillbirths, actually. So that you can, we come across the streets all the time. You come across somebody who's swearing, cursing, blaspheming, involved in all kinds of vile activities. They might even be drug dealers. They might be prostitutes and pimps. I've dealt with these people. And they say, I'm a Christian. I'm born again. And you've seen quite a lot of evidence that that doesn't seem to be so. And uh, uh, how did they get to that? And say, well, but God must forgive, mustn't he? So, well, actually, no, God is a just judge and uh, he must condemn our sins. Uh, how can a holy God, how can a holy God allow sinful people like you and I into his heaven? And that's a key question. And how a person answers that is, is key because that is a dilemma. If you understand the holiness of God, if you understand the depravity of man, the seriousness of sin, then this is a dilemma. How can a holy God allow wicked, sinful, depraved people like you and I into his heaven? And until the people have really grappled with that and realized, I don't see how he can. I'm, I'm at loss. Only then are they ready to hear the gospel. Is there a difference between the terms witness, or witnessing, and evangelizing? Yes. So to witness is to say what God has done for me or to give a testimony of God's grace in your life and the life of somebody else. So witnessing is telling a story which, which glorifies God and hopefully will draw people to Christ, but it doesn't necessarily call for response. Evangelizing has a response in mind so that I can witness by just telling people what God has done in my life, how he's transformed me. But uh, as I did just now, speaking about what had happened uh, when I entered that cinnamon pines on the uh, 3rd of April, 1977, that was a witness. But it wasn't evangelizing because I didn't call for response. Now, um, evangelism is when you start to move to, um, if you were to die tonight, do you know for sure that you'd go to heaven or hell? Or do you know where you would go when you die? Do you know what happens after you die? And so you start to ask. Now, if God was to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you answer? Now, now I'm starting to move into evangelism. I'm asking questions. I'm, I'm getting personal. And when you ask the person, would you like to pray now and ask Jesus to forgive your sins and to give you the gift of eternal life? When I ask, so what is stopping you from surrendering your life to Christ, confessing your sins and, and giving everything over to him. Now we're moving to evangelism because I'm calling for response. 
God now commands all men everywhere to repent. Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Uh, now, that's when witnessing, which is more objective, moves to evangelism, which is more subjective, where it's getting personal, and it's calling this person to a responsive action. Uh, Francis Schaeffer points out, using Jeremiah as an example, that evangelists preaching God's judgment to a post-Christian society must expect a hostile response, as uh, you have alluded to in your experiences, and uh, and also as your friend Major Adrian Clark, who I mentioned earlier, uh, when he with his first-hand experience uh, with his uh, three other colleagues who altogether were known as the Bristol Four, when they were arrested in 2016 for open-air preaching in Bristol, England, uh, their preaching included critiquing homosexuals and Islam from a biblical perspective. Um, have you experienced um, anything quite as uh, extreme as that? And um, <laughs> what strategies are there to counter this kind of and to persevere? Well, yes, look, there is opposition and we should expect opposition. <laughs> I remember the, one of the first times I started to um, uh, hand out Bibles to Russians. I was in Mozambique, my first mission there and there I was in uh, Maputo Harbor and I had a whole lot of... Um, um, Russian Bibles provided to me by the Slavic Gospel Association. It was just plain black covers. Um, it didn't say Bible on the outside or anything like this. And so I was, I was walking down in the harbor and I was seeing these Russian sailors in their Soviet uniforms with the red stars and hammers and sickles. And I was, I was handing out these New Testaments. And I'd given out five in a row and I thought, you know, this is really going well. I'm, I'm doing outstandingly well. This is during the Cold War 1982. And then suddenly I heard this bellow of this angry Russian. I turned around this man bearing down me and he looked big, much bigger than me. He picked me up over his head and he threw me into the harbor. And next thing, uh, as I'm falling amongst this muddy, um, oily, messy, litter, pollution, uh, uh, suddenly I plop, 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 my New Testaments are landing around me and I'm trying to collect the oil on it and uh, and uh, find a ladder and, uh, to be able to climb out of the harbor. So that wasn't a very effective um a response and <laughs> dampening. Um, on another occasion, I was um, uh, doing evangelism outside a brothel in Durban, and uh, uh, I had this uh, um, Russian pimp come charging towards a young girl in our team. Who I immediately got in front of her to protect her. Well, this this Russian pimp who actually owned this uh, brothel, uh, he lifted me up over his head and he threw me into uh, uh, West Street, which was a massive one-way. Uh, racetrack uh, in the sense of town and I was rolling there with cars swerving and hooting and uh, interesting enough that chap got shot in the head by one of his uh, trafficked girls with the tocker of pistol he kept under his pillow uh, about a week later so it didn't end very well for him uh, I've, I've had opposition I've, I've been beaten and attacked on occasion because people didn't like what I was saying um, but you know those are the minority of cases. And if you put it all together, it doesn't amount to much because it's a privilege to suffer for Christ. Christ suffered for us and left us an example that we should follow in his footsteps. And uh, the suffering is temporary. The glory is eternal. And uh, if Christ Jesus suffered for us, if he died for us, then no sacrifice I make can be too great to make for him. In fact, as David Livingston said, I don't think we should ever use the word sacrifice in terms of anything we can do for him, who though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. He said, don't use the word sacrifice. Rather say privilege. It is a privilege to suffer for Christ. And um, uh, let's be fair, most of the time these things don't happen. I've got a few funny stories to tell because 
I've been doing this for over 45 years. Um, but uh, to be honest, you can go months on the streets without a negative response like that. I mean, that's that's kind of rare. And I've probably been particularly confrontational. So I don't think our listeners need to worry about such extreme reactions. You know, if you're going outside brothels and if you're going into communist countries, you can expect a more extreme reaction. But uh, I could also say I've been in mosques and I've proclaimed the gospel in mosques and to Muslims. And while I've had some some verbal hostility, uh, yet nobody's tried to attack me in, in these cases too. So uh, I've been in uh, Mormon uh, uh, churches, I've been Jehovah's Witness, uh, Kingdom Halls, and I've proclaimed the gospel to them too in, in these places, uh, Christian science and different cults. So um, I've sometimes gone in, in very difficult places where you'd expect some kind of confrontational reactions. And in many cases, most cases, no, there hasn't been uh, uh, any kind of physical uh, assault. But um, yes, I have had a few cases of, of rejection. And Adrian Clark, uh, although he was preaching in Bristol where George Whitfield began his open-air preaching and where John Wesley preached, in Bristol, he and his uh, fellow open-air evangelists were arrested and went to court. But the rest of the story is the judge threw out the case. You know, I mean, Magna Carta, first principle, freedom of religion. Don't be ridiculous. So um, we shouldn't we shouldn't be afraid of confrontation or rejection because if that's the price to reach a whole lot of people, well, so be it. Um, before we turn to the more practical aspects of uh, um, evangelism, I'd just like to ask you two more questions. Um, do all Christians have to be evangelists or only those that have the gift of the gab? And does one's status as a Christian depend on whether one practices evangelism? Hmm. Well, we all called to be hospitable, but some people have a gift of hospitality. We all call to a faith. Some people have a gift of faith. We all call to witness and evangelize. But let's face some people like George Whitfield stand out as extraordinarily gifted for it. So, um, we're not all called to be as successful as George Whitfield in evangelism, but we all call to evangelize. Yes, uh, because we all have a testimony. If if you've been saved at all, you have a testimony, and if if somebody led you to the Lord, then you should know how to lead somebody else to the Lord. There's always people who are better than us and know more than us that we can learn from, and there's always people who don't know as much as us that we can teach and reach out to. So at any stage in our spiritual walk, there should be people that we know more than that we can bless. And there should be people who know more than we do that we can learn from. So um, I don't think we should be intimidated by the fact that some people do it better than us. You know, you may have watched uh, Ray Comfort of Way of the Master doing evangelism and think, wow, that's incredible. I wish I could evangelize like that. Well, you know, you can learn to, uh, he learned to, as he said, as beginning of attempts at evangelism were, were quite pitiful. And uh, But he didn't allow that to define him. He went back to the drawing board and he learned. He went back to the Bible and he, he uh, kept working at it till he became more effective. And so it is with any athlete. I mean, athletes also have to learn to walk and crawl and, and run and so on. And uh, sometimes some of the greatest athletes in the world uh, when they started, they might have run around the block and ran out of breath. Uh, it takes time to stretch your mind and your muscles and to be able to uh, stretch your stamina. And I think it's so in faith as well and in evangelism. So, yes, uh, all Christians are called to do so, but that doesn't necessarily mean you may have the gift of it. Uh, that may not be your lifetime's calling as, as it is in others. But remember, it's also true with faith. We all must have faith, but some people have a gift of faith. Um, perhaps this is the same question reworded and 
probably relates to your experience of conversion, but would you, is it safe to say that a person inspired to evangelize is filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, certainly you could not be filled with the Holy Spirit without being involved in evangelism because when you read in the book of Acts, every time we read about the Holy Spirit coming down on people such as at, at Pentecost and also upon uh, the, the people in the upper room after they'd been threatened by the Sanhedrin that they must not preach in the name of Jesus and they said we must obey God rather than men and they went and they prayed and as they finished praying, they prayed for the boldness to disobey the authorities who had forbidden them to evangelize and how did God answer? They were filled with the Holy Spirit and they went out and they proclaimed God's word with boldness in the public square. So if you filled with the Holy Spirit, evangelism would be one of the evident fruits that would flow out of it. Now, going on to the practical aspects, um, can you just tell us how evangelism was actually practiced in the Bible and, and what can we learn from that today? Well, the book of Acts is definitely our model. And we can see that uh, the one thing that the people did in the book of Acts uh, frequently was they had a lot of home meetings. They had home Bible study meetings, they had home prayer meetings, they had home fellowships, and they went to the marketplace, they went to the temple, they went to the synagogues, they went to the marketplaces, and they proclaimed God's word publicly. And they normally started with the God-fearing fringe, the people like uh, the uh, uh, centurion Cornelius in Acts chapter 8. They started with people who were really God-fearing and open, and then they worked outwards, and they, they started where they were, there Jerusalem, and then Judea, Samaria, outermost parts. And so... The whole point you can see is it works in a ripple effect. You start with the easiest, the people who speak your language, who have your worldview, and who live in your neighborhood. And then you move to a different area, but they still have the same culture and language. And then that's your Judea and then Samaria. Well, that's a different culture, different geographic region as well, and a different religion. And then ultimately, at most part, when you're crossing more and more boundaries. So uh, I think a great place to start is, of course, with your friends, your family, your neighborhood, uh, Bible study group where you are. In fact, that's where my witness really began in many ways was in the military during my national call-up, I did the uh, call for Bible study and prayer fellowship. It's got a small group together and we grew. We studied God's word. We prayed. We became a witness. And by the time we were finished our two years in the military, there were multiple Bible study and prayer fellowships. Many people converted and many have ended up in missions all over the world. So uh, plainly, if you just start with a Bible study and prayer fellowship, you can go far and wide. But in the scripture, we can see they used literature. We know this because the whole New Testament is a result. They wrote gospels, they wrote epistles uh, in order to, and they were distributed through the personal service of the empire uh, for both evangelism and for follow-up and discipleship. Uh, they had public meetings. They went to neutral areas. Uh, they were, used a lot of home meetings. They relied on a lot of personal conversations. And you can see they lived their faith. It was, it was faith in action. So uh, I think we can learn a lot from the book of Acts on the model for missions and evangelism today. Often when one thinks of evangelism, one thinks of the open-air preacher. Um, what is your experience and what have you learned and, and what, what does it take to actually do that mentally, physically and spiritually? Yes, well, um, you know, initially most of us are very intimidated with preaching. And the thing is, uh, when we start, we need notes. I mean, there's no doubt you do need notes. Uh, but for open-air preaching, you can't use notes. Uh, it's got to be very... Um, fluid and so you need a lot of experience in, in normal preaching and teaching in your normal environment and in personal one-on-one -on -one evangelism before you can get involved in open-air preaching because open-air preaching you've got to have those scriptures in your memory you've got to have those different points and you're not talking to a polite congregation that's that's all sitting waiting in the pew and listening to every point and so on and you don't have any chance of overhead transparencies or it's nothing like that so 
everything that you're doing has got to be engaging with the people. You see that person over there and you ask that question, you know, madam, this, uh, sir, that, and young man, and you, you're addressing different people and you're challenging the people. And, uh, you know, like in Wittenberg in, in 2017, there we were up uh, in front of the monument of Martin Luther in the town square of Wittenberg on the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing 95 Theses. And there's Adrian Clark up there preaching and he's, and he's addressing the people directly and he's calling them, what would Martin Luther say to you today? What would he think about this going on in your And he's, he's engaging, he's asking questions which make the people stop in their tracks. And you might only have the people for a few sentences. Um, and if you don't get them, you know, so you've got to be continually, fluidly uh, adapting your, your audience, your message to the audience you see out there. And this is effective. So, for example, if you want to get, as I've done in open air, for example, university campus and so on, you, you often challenge the people about something, you know, the, the, the blasphemy that they just published in their uh, student magazine, uh, the, the things that they've been tolerating, the free speech they've been clamping down on. And so you, you engage with the people with what the people on the ground are thinking and what they are busy with and doing. And you can ask the direct questions. You know, do you support abortion? Do you think it's right to kill babies for convenience because it's going to interfere with your studies? Do you and you, you ask the people the tough questions. You, you point out, you know, pornography is a theory. Rape is the practice. Pornography is a manual for rape. Uh, life begins at conception. Abortion is murder. And we've got to deal with these uh, cultural, social issues, because that's where the people are. That's where you get them engaged. And from there, as, as Francis Schaeffer says, we've got to tackle the issues of our day. And because the people, if you just come say, I would like to present to you an exposition of this passage, and, and the guys have walked past, they're, they're not going to stop and stand and sit and listen, let alone take notes. You've got to. So open air preaching is like an, an ongoing conversation. And I might also say, as Ray Comfort has said, when you get heckling, that's great because now uh, when there's a controversy and conflict, you get more of an audience. People are interested in conflict. If you don't have opposition, to be honest, open air preaching is tough if there's no opposition. The best open air preaching is when there's somebody out there shouting, heckling, accusing, contradicting. That's great. That's when the audience just swells. And so actually to be a good open air preacher, you've got to be a good debater because debating and public speaking is key, which is why we have in our – Great Commission training courses, these just-a-minute programs where we have four people on a panel up front and the only way they can win is by interrupting one another correctly. You know, no hesitation, no deviation, no repetition. And we try to get the people to think fast. And you give them this, you have 60 seconds, speak on a subject, off. And if the person hesitates, the other person jumps in. And these are debating skill games we try to teach our witnesses and evangelists for open-air ministry, for radio ministry, uh, for debates in the classroom. And uh, we've got to be prepared to get some opposition and realize this is a springboard for preaching the gospel. Um, to, to close off this conversation, I'd like to go back to what we started with, which was last week's uh, frontline outreaches. How did you find the reception from the public? Actually, very good. I mean, we managed to speak to uh, people in the ground, I, mean, I spoke to Jewish people, uh, Muslims, uh, quite a lot of Muslims were very open and, and positive. Uh, we had uh, secular people. Uh, we, had, we had a little bit of opposition. Uh, I had some harassment, had some uh, security officials trying to close us down. Um, but, um, you know, um, I pointed out we have a Bill of Rights. He wanted my permit. And I, I said, um, we don't need a permit. We've got the Bill of Rights and the Constitution guaranteeing freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, freedom of movement, freedom of association, freedom of speech, freedom of worship 
English of Freedom of the Press. He said, I need something else in paper. And I said, well, these things are printed and um, uh, available on uh, both paper form and digitally. He said, I need something higher. And I pointed out, well, uh, high authority? Yes. Well, in the Bible, you'll see the Great Commission. That's also in printed form. Um, and there's no higher authority. There was a little bit of, of resistance. But to be honest, most people are very responsive. We had hours of discussions just in Seapoint Promenade discussing. So, yes, we had people thanking us, grateful. We just read thousands of gospel leaflets, and we had scores of conversations, and we prayed with uh, easily a dozen people. So, uh, yes, the response was good. It just shows you uh, that um, faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of God, and the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Dr. Hammond, can you recommend any resources for aspiring evangelists and preachers? Yes. Evangelism Explosion and Way of the Master are the two very best evangelistic training programs. We've incorporated them in our Great Commission courses. If you go onto the www.frontlinemissionsa.org website, you will see some of our audios and videos and articles on our Great Commission courses, and, and you'll be able to see some of our evangelism workshops and, and uh, benefit from some of them. And also you can Email us, mission at frontline.org.za, mission at frontline.org.za, and we will put you in touch with Evangelism Explosion, Where the Master Materials. In Africa, we stock Living Waters Africa Materials, which is where the master tracks. When you've got great resources and good training programs, it makes the work so much easier. So contact us, mission at frontline.org.za, or visit www.frontlinemissionsa.org. In Romans, Paul asks, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? That's Romans chapter 10, verse 14. Thank you very much for joining us for From the Frontline. God bless and good night. <laughs>